0: Hello and welcome to Reactive Yellow Room. I am Evi Kiori and today is International Earth Day and we are talking about the new developments on climate law and the outcome of this week's negotiations, the reactions and the future plans to achieve the climate targets. We are also touching a truly sensitive topic that emerged last week and caused a wave of reactions within the EU and the Balkans. And that is no other than the phantom known paper proposing the peaceful dissolution of Bosnia-Herzegovina. As I mentioned, today is the International Earth Day, and what a better opportunity to talk about the outcome of the climate law negotiations. So, to break down all the components of the decisions made, I am joined today by Kira Taylor, Euractiv's energy and environment reporter. So, Kira, we saw the conclusion of the climate law negotiations early on Wednesday morning. What was the outcome, and did we see anything new there?
1: Yeah, so it was a long, long process of negotiations. I think they ended up with 14 hours in the end, uh, got conclusions around 5 a.m. in the morning. So we ended up with some very tired looking people at some press conferences. Long night. Yeah, very long night. Uh, luckily, I escaped the worst of it, but I still had a 4 a.m. start. So hopefully I make sense now. Uh, so yeah, the, the big thing and the, the big uh, point of contention was the 2030 target the council really didn't move that much on it. We still see the minus 55% uh, net target by 2030. The thing we have seen is a limit on the number of carbon sinks. So a limit in how much carbon uh, removals can count towards that target. And that's been good because it means that uh, member states still have to focus on reducing the amount of carbon emitted. Um, another thing we saw was increased ambition on that. So. You may hear people from the S&D and Renew talk about a 57% reduction. There's lots of numbers going around at the moment, it's very political. But that 57% comes from increased ambition the council has put forward, saying they could increase the number of of sinks. We've also seen the greenhouse gas budget agreed, as that will be published in 2023. And a slight, or like a key win for the parliament there, is that the budget will have, an or it will be indicative, still working out quite what that means, mm-hmm. um, for the 2040 target.
0: Mm-hmm. And I read that they decided to establish the European Scientific Advisory Board. What would be the function of this new body?
1: So its main function will be to advise policymakers on aligning their policies with a uh, climate neutrality goal. So it's Paris target. Mm-hmm. Um, It will have 15 members uh, with a four year mandate and there'll be sort of scientists who can say uh, whether this will help and advise on the policy. Um, A lot of people say that's quite good because it gives a predictability to this uh, legislation.
0: Do these scientists come from different countries or is it something that is decided here in Brussels?
1: Yeah, so originally uh, the council was pushing for a network. Uh, That, so one from each member state, that hasn't come through. The parliament won a bit of ground there. So what it will be is these 15 members and there can't be any more than two from each member state. And they are talking about a a gender balance and everything. So they are looking at equality on this.
0: And what was the reaction from the commission? Could we say that for Ursula von der Leyen, the outcome of the negotiations was a more uh, personal victory?
1: Yeah, I mean, this has been uh, von der Leyen's uh, main thing. You know, she pushed for the fifty-five percent. I think it would be unfair to all of the other negotiators to say it's just her victory, but it does allow her to go to the U.S. climate summit with uh, this uh, goal to be the first climate-neutral continent by twenty fifty. And again, that is in this climate law now. Um, it also means we we have this consistency clause, which is. Not got that much attention, but it's going to be key uh, when we see all of this new climate legislation in June, because it means that new proposals need to be in line with net zero by 2050. And again, that's looking good on the global
0: stage. And talking about the United States position, just minutes after our recording with Kira, the US announced a new 2030 greenhouse gas emissions reduction target of between 50 and 52% based on 2005 levels. That equals a reduction of 40 to 43% based in 1990 levels, just like the EU targets.
1: But what the US is really trying to do is to say, we're back. You know, a lot of trust was broken when they left the Paris Agreement, and they really need to come back and say, uh, we're back on the global stage for climate ambition. And also just, they want to be climate leaders as well. And the EU is seeing increasing competition from them. Uh, so I think we're going to be watching Twitter and seeing who's saying what and who's trying
0: to take control of climate leadership. Thank you Kira for the explanation on climate law. Do follow this topic on youractive.com and check out our Green Brief every Wednesday. You're listening to your Active's yellow room. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other EU policy fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief Podcast and Agrifood Brief Podcast. You can find them on your favorite podcasting app. And moving on another topic. A lot of noise was caused last week around a phantom non-paper proposing border changes across the Western Balkans. To shed some light on what is that famous non-paper and what are the expectations, I am joined today by your Aleksandra Brzozowski and Vlad Maximov. So Alex, what is the story behind the document?
2: So on 15th of April, the Ljubljana-based outlet Netzen Zurgigano published what it said was a non-paper allegedly authored by Slovenian Prime Minister Janis Janca. Uh, or at least someone from his inner circle proposing possible changes um, to the borders in the Western Balkans. Janscha has publicly denied writing the document, and his office, also contacted by us, said it does not further comment on the issue. Um, it was in the end Bosnian media that were the first ones to report that Jansha had handed over this document with guidelines on what they called um final disintegration of former Yugoslavia to. Uh, European Council
0: President Charles michel in either February or March this year. And Vlad, what are the proposals, uh, geopolitically speaking?
3: Without going into all the nitty-gritty details, it would involve essentially a dissolution of Bosnia into its constituent ethnic parts uh, and uh, some land swaps between Albania and North Macedonia, uh, as well as Kosovo and Serbia. So pretty much the answer to your question is it would affect the entire region. Um, One thing to add to what Alex mentioned is uh, this uh, alleged non-paper that was allegedly (laughs) handed over to President Sharma's office is being very often described by the EU officials as uh, Mm non-existent. And as hard as we try to press... Uh, President Charles michels office for a clear uh, confirmation of whether they've received it or not.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. But Alex, why has the EU side reacted the way it has? So in general, EU institutions and member states um, occasionally share
2: this confidential but unofficial non-papers as suggested um, talking points or possible frameworks for discussion, especially when the topics are rather delicate or... um, Touchy, let's say, and just to determine some kind of common ground uh, between, between member states. So a non-paper as such would be not so unusual. But um, what was unusual in this case where the channels, um, this paper went through, or rather didn't go through. So we reached out to Michel's office for a confirmation or a denial of the reception of that paper. We didn't receive a concrete answer, but we were told that his office cannot give any comment whatsoever about about its reception. Um, What we're told is also that the European Commission and the EU's Diplomatic Service were not aware of the alleged unofficial document. Same goes basically for um, all diplomats we've, we've contacted and have spoken to. And at least they haven't seen it through the official channels, but through media reports, as they said. So, it's a very unorthodox uh, way of dealing with things. Um, in diplomatic practice, this means its existence can be publicly denied at any time, which has not been the case with uh, Michel's office. Um, it's just hard for us to see what would be the incentive to not deny
0: such an explosive paper. Mm-hmm. And why is this proposal causing so much stress in the Balkans? And if you look at it from an EU perspective, what would that be?
3: It really goes where it hurts most. Um, so uh, clearly, you know, I think there we need to see this from a historical perspective. Um, this is not the first time uh, someone proposes land swaps as a solution to the many uh, problems in the Western Balkans. Um, perhaps most uh, vivid in memory is a case from 2018 when. Um, Uh, Then-Kosovo president Thaci and uh, Serbian president Vucic were apparently discussing a land swap between Kosovo and Serbia as one of the uh, ways forward. And then that caused quite a bit of stir, and interestingly enough, um, the high representative at that time, Federica Mogherini, was not completely opposed to the idea, as long as it's done through through accepted international practice. That was not true for the rest of European capitals. Germany quite vehemently opposed uh, any kind of land swaps and was later joined by all the relevant partners. Uh, So that idea kind of died down, and then the talks uh, between Pristina and Belgrade broke down as well. Um, So all of it kind of was forgotten for the past couple of years, and now it has resurfaced. So And that is just the most vivid um, case in recent memory, but the idea of land swaps reemerges now and again. So the idea itself is not uh, uh, not very destabilizing. What is strange about it is how far this paper goes. It really looks like someone went through a checklist uh, of how to piss everyone off and make everyone <laughs> anxious around the table. And really, this is how it reads. It is quite provocative in both its language and proposals. Um so it's no 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 surprise really that it's caused so much anxiety and this at the time when the EU enlargement process itself is quite stagnant contrary to uh, the many attempts of uh, Brussels elites to uh, prove otherwise at the end of the day even after green lighting, the accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania uh I think more than a year ago now we're at a point where the negotiations can't start um And that is just the, you know, the latest in this very long saga of a very protracted process and really the image of the EU in the region um, with every single analyst and commentator and stakeholder that we speak is at risk and it's actually declining. Um, People are really starting to lose hope uh, of ever joining the EU.
0: So what are the geopolitical narratives here?
3: Well, I'm just going to say, you know, it's very hard for us to speculate. So it's uh, since uh, no one has claimed publicly the authorship of the paper, it would be quite unwise of us to try to pin it on anyone. But one way to uh, approach this issue is to look at who is interested and who plays a role in the region. Uh, the very first actor is Turkey, which is mentioned quite outright in the paper and it's and uh, also quite a provocative way. So, yeah, so we've reached out to Turkish officials and they've also been very, very outright in denying any kind of involvement in supporting, uh, you know, uh, independence and territorial sovereignty of uh, Western uh, Balkan states as they are.
2: And and also they, because we asked them obviously what, what, what they think about the idea of the non-paper, so they also... Turkish officials also rejected the plan as not really contributing to regional stability.
3: And that much is true. It's hard to see how Turkey would gain from this kind of uh, uh, chaos in the Western Balkans that would most probably ensue if any of these plans were put into action. Um, You know, China has mostly uh, economic interests in the region so far. Whether that's going to change in the future uh, is up for anyone to debate. And then the last question is Kremlin, as always, this is a lot of effort to put spikes in the EU's wheels from Kremlin. We've seen uh, Moscow do a lot, of, uh, a lot of crazy things, so nothing can be, of course, ruled out. But it seems too much. Uh, to be, yes, too much, uh, a bit of a stretch. But then again, you never know what to expect from, from the Russians.
0: Mm-hmm. And what can we expect in the future?
3: There are a couple of scenarios here. Uh, the most likely one is that we're going to stop talking about this next week, um, and it's going to disappear into the not-so-far oblivion for the next couple of months or years, uh, most probably to re-emerge again this idea of dissolution. Mm-hmm. And
0: until the next proposal.
3: Until the, Until <laughs> the next non-existent non-paper, yes. It all fits into this larger picture that we have been talking about of EU enlargement and where the future of Western Balkans lie. Um, uh, we can of course hear, uh, Brussels say that, uh, and the European, uh, perspective of the Western Balkans is clear, but unless that starts to change and there is any tangible progress in this process, a reemergence of such, uh, ideas and other radical proposals cannot be excluded. Of course, um, another way forward is out and publicly deny ever receiving this paper, which also seems quite unlikely. And uh, perhaps there are more leaks coming. Who knows?
2: And then when we think of the institutional agenda ahead for the next few months, uh, basically EU foreign ministers were scheduled to hold a debate about and with the Western Balkans um, in April, but this has been also moved to um, the next meeting in May. So to be fair, the region has been on the back burner for for quite a long time, and um, we have asked why why the debate has been postponed. So um, some officials told us that um, such a debate would require an in person meeting instead of a video link. So the idea is kind of to discuss the region with foreign ministers, with probably the special representative um, Miroslav Lajcak and regional leaders. But the takeaway is that, um, and this is something that we heard from different sides in Brussels is that the situation in the Western Balkans is evolving in different directions, but not all of them are necessarily positive.
0: Well, thank you, Alex and Vlad, for being with us today and for giving us a better understanding on what is happening with that topic. And if you want to learn more about what is happening in the Western Balkans, please check out what Alex and Vlad are reporting on youractive.com. And that's all from us for now. I am Evi Kiori and this was Euractives Yellow Room. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon.